One of my, my favorite basketball heroes or stars is Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant was kind of because he was the same age. He's about three years older than me. And, and Kobe Bryant had this mentality they called the Mamba mentality. Everybody say Mamba mentality. Right? So the Mamba mentality is this, this work ethic. And Jay Williams, who's now on, on ESPN as a commentator, played at Duke. His rookie year, he talked about going to play at the Staples Center against the L.A. Lakers, who are back-to-back champions with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. He said, I want to go get some extra shots up. So I, I get there, you know, about 3 o'clock, and I want to get about an hour workout in, get 400 made shots. And so I go in. When I walk in, Kobe's already there. He's already in full sweat, clothes are drenched, putting up shots. He said, I go and I start getting my shots up. I want to get my 400 made. And I made my 400, but Kobe's still there. So then I go and I start putting up some more shots. About After 30, 45 more minutes, I have a game that night. I needed to go get rested in the sauna. He said, look, and Kobe's still there. So I shoot a little bit longer. Then finally I go and unlace my tennis shoes. And I'm getting ready to go to the locker room and get showered and, and changed. Kobe's still there. He said, that night of the game, we go to play, playing in Staples Center as a rookie against Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, the world champs from the year before. And he said, and Kobe dropped 40-something points on us. He said, after the game, I had to know. He's like, I had to know. Why was he in the gym so long? You're an MVP. You're a world champion. He said, he asked Kobe after the game. He's like, dude, I came to the gym. You were already in the gym. I shoot for an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes. I leave. You're still in the gym. Why are you putting in that much work? Kobe says, well, I saw you walk in. And I wanted to make sure you knew I was willing to work harder than you are at any moment of the day. And Jay said, I realize there's something different about him. And they called it the mama mentality, this intimidation factor, this work ethic. And right before he passed away, he had an interview with Lewis Howes on his podcast. And, and they were talking about his upbringing. He said, how did you develop that mama mentality, that work ethic that you're known for? And he said, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, he says, playing in the summer league in Philadelphia. And the summer league is, is famous. He's like, NBA players have gone through this summer league. And he said, in my, my 11-year-old season, I had zero points. He said, not a single point, not a free throw, not a fast break layup, not an accidentally somebody threw the ball, hit me on the head and bounced in the rim. Nothing. Not a single point. He said, I was devastated. He said, I was at that age where I was starting to grow. My knees always hurt. I had on big knee pads. My socks pulled up with a high top fade. He said, I looked bad. I played bad. I was terrible is what Kobe said. And he said his dad told him something that stuck with him. He said, son, regardless if you score zero points or 40-something points, I'm going to love you just the same. He said Kobe said it gave him, the approval of his father gave him the confidence to fail. And Kobe realized he couldn't catch up with these other kids who were more athletic than him next week or next year. He said, I came up with this, this plan that if I could just get better at my jump shot over the next six months, just worked on my jump shot, I'd be a little bit better. So I worked on my jump shot for six months, and I worked on creating my own shot for the next six months. The next summer league, he said, I wasn't great, but I, I scored a couple points. He said, that next offseason, I, I worked on some other things. And he said, I came back the next year. After two years of not scoring a single point, I was a number one player in the state. He said, my athletic ability caught up with my hard work, my fundamentals, and I began to dominate. He said, and I realized that success was not a measure of opportunity or talent. It was a measure of hard work. And he said, I realized that if another kid's practicing one hour a day for five days a week, that's five hours. But if I practice for three hours a day, five days a week, that's 15 hours. And over a month, that's 60 hours compared to 20 hours. Over a year, he said, it's all math. He said, it's about input. When you work, you're putting input in to get something that's an output. And he called that the mamba mentality, hard work and dedication. I want you to know that as a Christian, your work ethic is just as much of your worship as your Sunday morning singing. 
I want you to know that your work ethic communicates to people who your Lord is just as much as your, what would Jesus do bracelet would be. I want you to know that your work ethic is probably the greatest witness you have outside the walls of this church. And the New Testament church was bold about it. Paul wrote over and over again about your work ethic. Work heartily unto the Lord. Work as unto the Lord. Work and all these things. And I feel like we're lost that in our society. I, I feel like I've been around a lot of Christians. And it's a sad day when you're at work and somebody's lazy in the name of Jesus. Well, you know, I got, I've been around people, well, you know, I got to, and no, I'm, well, I'm a Christian. Well, that doesn't give you out from hard work. It gives you a motivation for hard work. And I believe if we're going to grow an in influence, I believe one of the blessings of work is going to be one of those places of influence. And he says this in Colossians 3.22. This is Paul speaking. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, everybody say whatever. Whatever you do, whatever job you're in, teacher, police officer, doctor, nurse, artist, creative, working at McDonald's, working at Publix, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. The New Century Version says, in all the work you are doing, work the best you can. Work as if you are doing it for Jesus himself, not for people. The NIV says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. The Living Bible says, work hard and cheerfully at all you do, just as though you're working for Jesus himself and not merely for your masters. See, the moment you get saved, everybody at work has a boss and they get a paycheck. Everybody. They have a boss, they have a manager, they have a paycheck. But once you say yes to Jesus, you don't just have a boss and a paycheck. You now have a king who is greater than your boss that you work for. And you now have a reward that's greater than your paycheck, this inheritance that Paul has said is coming your way. And so as a believer, your motivation should be different. Your motivation shouldn't be just to please your boss. Your motivation should be please the one who saved you. Your motivation shouldn't be a paycheck on Friday. It should be the rewards of the glory of God in your life because you worked as unto the Lord. See, your work is a motivation but also a reward. But we're in a day and age where people don't want to work. They just want a paycheck. And that's why it's so hard for employers to hire people now. It's because they don't need a paycheck because they still got, you know, uh, money from COVID. So they don't need a paycheck. They don't want to work, not realizing work is a blessing. And it's a blessing. I remember their story I heard years ago about Teddy Roosevelt was running for, for president again. And he was at his farm in, in Massachusetts, I believe, and, or in New York. And he had some, some reporters come. And the reporters wanted to come and talk to him. He said, well, let's go out to the barn. We can talk out there. And he takes him out to the barn and picks up a, a pitchfork. He's going to throw some hay into a stall. And he looks, there's no hay. He said, John, where's the hay? He says, I haven't thrown it down yet since the last press people came by. He was just throwing it up for the show and for the look of it. There's so many people who just work for the show of it instead of the glory of God for it. And I, and I believe once we get this, it makes a difference because the work ethic of Christians has changed the world for the good. It has changed the New Testament church, changed the world in Rome and Greece and all over the Middle, Middle Eastern world. The New Testament church in America changed America for the good. And we've lost that result because our work ethic should set us apart from the other people at work with us because it should give God glory, not just a paycheck. 
If you're showing up just to, just to work for a paycheck, you've already missed. You're, you're walking out as a follower of Jesus. His glory is seen in everything we do. So how did Christian work ethic prove the world? And I, I've been hitting this. I was telling Pastor Brian, almost every sermon I have, I'm trying to show you the blessing the church has been to the world for 2,000 years. Because outside these walls, people are trying to deconstruct the church and talk about how bad the church is because they're revisioning history through a negative lens. In the New Testament church, the work ethic New Testament church dignified labor. Before the New Testament church, there was two classes of people, rich and poor. The rich people, the professors, the, the philosophers, the bureaucrats, the politicians in Rome. It was, a, it was so much below them to do menial tasks and labor. They looked down upon people who would work with their hands. Looked down on blue-collar workers. That was for servants and bond servants and slaves and the poor and the lowest of the lowest. They looked down upon them, and it almost seems like today, where we look down upon people who work with their hands. Look down upon white-collar people. Look down upon blue-collar workers as they're hillbillies or rednecks. It's the same thing. But then the Christians redeemed work and sanctified it. Why? Because Jesus, our Messiah, our King, and our Lord worked with his hands. He did manual labor. He worked with his hands. So they redeemed it. The Christians were actually doing work that the slaves would do, and they redeemed it, and they dignified work as a way to worship their God. Two, it established the middle class. Without the church, there would only be two classes of people, rich and poor. But the church created the middle class for the first time in history. In casteisms of rich and poor, the church is one that redeemed work and broke through the poverty cycle to create this middle class of people that weren't the elite, that weren't the slaves, and created this whole class of people, which then brought in thousands and thousands of people in every generation out of poverty into the middle class, which has changed poverty rates, which has changed disease rates because they're linked to poverty, and it's all because the new... You know, in a world and a culture full of class warfare, the church is the one who established the class system, to break down the bonds of rich and poor. But it also changed slavery. Throughout the Bible, you, you see many things on slavery. It talks about the bond servants and how did it change slavery for the first time, for the first time in the world history. And the slavery in this scripture is not like the, the deep south during the cotton days and colonial days. It was more of if you owed a debt, you became a servant to that person or the servants that household. It was, it was cheap labor. It was, it was low employment. It was those type things. But for the first time, the New Testament church said there is not a difference in the value or the honor between a slave and a slave master. For the first time, Paul writes a letter in Philemon in the Bible, which is one chapter in the Bible, where he's, he's talking about he is now your brother. You should treat him like a brother. He has the same value to Jesus as you have. And that rocked the world in Rome. For the first time, you have slaves and slave owners sitting at the same table at the same church taking communion together. The New Testament church changed the world through its work ethic. But also, America was built on the Christian work ethic. The Puritans, who were some of the first Christians that came over from Europe into America, who established states like Pennsylvania and all these other things, had these three ideals they wanted to see happen in the new world. The ideal of a God-centered life. Everybody say God-centered. A God-centered life, the doctrine of calling, and the conviction that all of, God, all of life is God's. It's the writers of Jonathan Edwards and, and John Bunyan and Matthew Henry from Matthew Henry's commentary, Thomas Brooks, one of my favorite writers, where they had this idea of God-centered life, 
doctrine of calling and all of life is God's in his life and his ownership. And these, these ideals, these values are what America's economy and culture were established in. The God-centered life, meaning that putting God first and valuing everything else in relation to God was a recurring theme. That my life is not Sunday and Monday. My life is all of God's every single moment. The doctrine of vocation, meaning you have a calling, calling, a general calling to be called out of darkness into his kingdom. A calling to be called out of sin into righteousness. A calling out of your identity into his identity. A general calling. But you also had a specific calling that whatever you find your hands doing, you're called to do it for the glory of God. And it changed the known world. It changed the caste system. It changed everything about the economy. But thirdly, it was all of life as God's. The Puritans lived in these two worlds of heaven and earth at the same time. And one of them said, we are to so spiritualize our hearts and affections that we may have a heavenly hearts in earthly employments. If God be over us, he must be over us in everything, in every moment, and every minute. And John Bunyan, in his book, Grace Benedict, said, have you forgot the milk house, the barn, the stable, and the like where God did visit your soul? In such a framework, there are no trivial events, and all of life is potentially a teachable moment. Like the Puritans embraced this mindset in the new world of America that we're here for a purpose, we're here to work, and the values in which we have, my work is part of my worship, and as I work and I worship, God blesses it, and the blessings came upon America. Like the blessings for the first time the world was seeing this country who had formed in just a few short years, God blessing it tremendously with favor, financial prosperity, with health, with all this amazing thing. Even you think about the Constitution, the, the Continental War between England and America, we should have lost that war, but there's this favor on America that came from these values. But now those values are changing. In Democracy in America, I'm going to read a couple of this. Written in the 1800s, Alexis Tocqueville worried that the free capitalist societies might develop so great a taste for physical gratification that citizens would be carried away and lose all self-restraint. Avidly seeking personal gain, they could lose sight of the close connection which exists between the private fortune of each of them and the prosperity of all and ultimately undermine both democracy and prosperity. The genius of American 19th century was on that, that productive industry was wrapped up in these values of the Puritan church. That they celebrate not merely hard work, but also thrift, integrity, self-reliance, and modesty. Virtues that grew out of the pervasiveness of religion, which Tocqueville called the first of America's political institutions. Imparting morality to American democracy and free markets. Some 75 years later, socialist Max Weber dubbed the qualities that Tocqueville observed as the Protestant or the Puritan work ethic. And considered them to be the cornerstone of successful capitalism. But what would Tocqueville or Weber think of America today? In place of thrift, they would find a nation of debtors, staggering beneath loans obtained under false pretenses. In place of steady, patient accumulation of wealth, they would find bankers and financiers with such short-term perspectives that they never pause to consider the consequences or risk of selling securities they don't understand. In place of a country where all a man asks of government is to not be disturbed in his toil, as Tocqueville put it, they would find a nation of rent seekers and corporations demanding government subsidies to purchase homes, to start new businesses, or bail out old failed ones. 
What would they find now today? After flourishing for three centuries in America, the Protestant work ethic began to disintegrate, with key elements slowly disappearing from modern American society, vanishing from schools, businesses, and popular culture, leaving us with an economic system unanchored from the restraints of civic virtue, meaning that capitalism only works with the values of Protestant work ethic. When you remove the Protestant work ethic, capitalism becomes a greedy exploitation of people for more gain. And he's saying that as the Puritan, the Protestant work ethic, meaning the Christians lost their work ethic, they lost their virtues, they lost their values, now the system is overtaking. What is that? What are you trying to say, Pastor? That without the Christian work ethic, the blessings upon America's prosperity financially disappear. But with Christian work ethic and Christian values... God can bless an economic system because the economic system blesses the lowest of lows and the poorest of poor. But without it, it becomes a greed-feeding machine. You say, well, what are you saying? Do you remember the old days where on Sundays when you left church, you had to eat at home because you couldn't stop at a restaurant? Why? It was Protestant work ethic. Work hard six days a week, rest one. Do you remember the good old days when there was morality and advertising? Protestant work ethic. Remember the good old days when you were rewarded for your hard work instead of punished for it by the government for more taxes? Protestant work ethic. When you lose the Protestant work ethic, you lose the value system that maintains our country and our nation. And it's needed to come back again. Weber famously argued that the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin's and Martin Luther's emphasis on individual responsibility, hard work, thrift, providence, and honesty, and deferred gratification at its center, shaped the spirit of capitalism and helped it succeed. Calvinism and the sects that grew out of it, especially Puritanism and John Wesley's Methodism in England, were religions chiefly of the middle and working classes, and the virtues they promoted led to a new kind of affluence and upward mobility, based not on land because the government owned land in England, but on productive enterprises. And unlike in Europe where the aristocrats and, and, the, and the rich people scorned labor in the United States, it was bragged upon. You had Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, these amazing elitist figures who still work nominal jobs because there's value in working as unto the Lord. One liberal writer said this, at the outset of Forgotten Americans, Saul Hill explains, my goal for this book is very simple, to catalyze a new discussion about how to create a jobs-based prosperity and a less divided nation in the decades ahead. She outlines what she says is a case for returning to a system, the Protestant work ethic, which work is rewarded over welfare, hand-ups over handouts, and wages over windfall profits. It's about prompting the lives of those who are neither rich nor poor, but somewhere in the middle, and about policies that are linked to values instead of greed. I'm here to tell you that your work ethic makes a difference to your witness and to the people around you because God blesses values-driven work ethic. Blesses it. Our country is built on it. Our country is not built on the stock market. The stock market didn't even exist. Our country was built on people who had values that were biblical values, and they worked hard, and God blessed those two things coming together. We say, well, you don't know about my job, Pastor. My job, it's of the devil. Well, I worked at this little old factory Little old Thomas Jefferson lookalike, he's telling me, hey, bo- hey boy, this place, there's got to be a heaven. This place is hell. And I've, I've poured concrete. I've laid brick. I've cut tobacco. I've worked for the United States Air Force, which is the closest thing to purgatory you can get to. I've done it all. I, I, I understand work, but we, we have learned, we've been taught that work is this curse. 
And at work is this, this burden that's put on you by the man. I've even heard preachers say that work is a curse. And I'll go to Genesis 3 and talk about how God cursed the ground that Adam was a toilet. But if you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, work is not a curse. It's a blessing. Like, like work is a blessing. Listen, not everybody gets to do it. I was talking to a young man who was trying to share with me all these liberal agendas and, and all this corporate stuff all over the world. He's talking about these countries that they're getting exploited for labor. And I said, hey, listen, it may be exploitation. But I've been in Haiti, and they would die for a $2 an hour job. They would die to be able to work. People that are coming up from Central America through Mexico to the border, why are they coming? For an opportunity to work. Why? Work is a blessing. It is not a curse. So Genesis 1, verse 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. After, God had just worked for six days, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. Then verse 15 of chapter 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is before the fall, before sin, before Adam, before Eve fell in the garden. This is not a curse. This is part of God's creative plan of blessing to work and keep it. Touch your neighbor and say, work it. Touch your other and say, work it, girl. No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Working like God in his creative design, he created us to work. Why? God worked. He worked for six long days, then finally he rested. He created us with this cycle built into our DNA and our Mago day of work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. But we've gotten where some people burn out, they just work, 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 work with no rest, which is sinful. You got some people that just rest, 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 which is sinful. There's somewhere in between that it reflects your God-given identity and purpose on earth. And there's, there's probably three types of people. You have the people that, are, that lean towards apathy and, and laziness and over-resting, which I believe is just as detrimental as overworking. You look at David. When David stopped working, he started hanging out on his rooftop. All of a sudden, Bathsheba shows up. Underworking can cause some problems. Overworking, when you start idolizing your work and worshiping money and worshiping getting ahead and not trusting God and not resting, is sinful. But somewhere in between where you work and you rest and you catch this natural rhythm that's inside of you becomes a blessing. Why? Because work is two things. One, it's the path of purpose that God gave Adam. He created him. He said, I'm going to give you work to do. And the work helped him fulfill his purpose to be like God. See, your work has a, a purpose to it. Without work, you lack Purpose. Work is an opportunity to fulfill the passion and purpose God has placed inside of you. Yes, sometimes in a place you don't want to be. Sometimes it's your dream job. Sometimes it's in your not dream job. Sometimes it's your nightmare job. But it's an opportunity to fulfill passion inside of you. It's also an opportunity to express talent and connect with others and meet the needs of others for the greater good. See, you, you need a purpose. And work is where you find that purpose. Yeah, you can, you can fulfill some of the purpose volunteering at church. You can fulfill some of it maybe in your hobbies. But work is God's design mechanism to help you find purpose in life. You don't believe me? 
as soon as somebody stops working, you watch their lives start spiraling out of control. Wow, man is not made to sit around all day long and watch Oprah and eat bonbons and Netflix and chill. A man is designed. Do you realize that the moment your body stops working, it starts apathy? Like your, your body literally stops dying once it stops working. Your mind actually does the same. Once you stop working your mind, it starts going backward. You're, you're made to work. And, and men, and I'm not being, this is not massages at all. I'm all for everybody working. But men, it is not okay for you to sit at home and let your wife work. You say, well, I can't believe you'd say that. You know why? Because at some point, every woman wants a man that she can depend on, that she knows will take care of her, that will protect her, that will provide for her, that will serve for her. And it's hard to do that when you're sitting on the couch where she gets him and goes to work. Well, you know, I, I chose to stay home with the kids. That's great, but there's going to come a time she's going to want a man. And there's something about a man that when he gets up and goes to work, it fulfills something in him. There's something about putting groceries in the cabinet. There's something about putting some money in the mailbox. There's something about the Dream Center. When people get to go and shop for their own groceries, they feel like they're providing. It fills a purpose inside of them. Men, over and over again, I see marriage problems where men are just lazy. And when you don't have a purpose in front of you, you lose your identity and you lose your focal point and you lose your self-worth and you lose your meaning. You're designed to work. It gives you purpose, but it also gives you provision. The way God was going to provide, yes, God is our provider, but the way he provides is through opportunities to work. Yes, I know you're going to say, well, you know, I can sit on the couch and I can call TBN and I can give them $25 and $500 is going to come to my mailbox next week. You can try that. And if you try it, you can send $25 to 3051 Cloverdale Road. I'm not going to tell you the same thing. It doesn't work. God does not provide that way. God does not provide through get-rich-quick schemes. God does not provide through entitlement mentality. God does not provide through laziness. God provides through opportunities to work. He literally places Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, I expect you to be fruitful and multiply this, meaning I'm giving you the opportunity to get the provision you need on this earth. See, it fulfills this, this, this calling to productivity. Every person created in God's image has this inside of them, this need to produce something, to be productive with their life. To, to use my life for something good. And it's work that gives you the opportunity to say, well, you know, I'm just making a living. I'm, I, I work at a factory. I don't have, yes, you can give. You can sow into the soul's dream center and your work just now has purpose. Like you can, you can give into the kingdom and you're helping other churches through the church. Like it has purpose. See, productivity, everybody has it. You need to be productive. Second, it's a call to greatness. Not just in numerical value, but when you do something with your life, that blesses other people, it creates a greatness inside of you, a nobility inside of you where you can walk with your chin up. See, the, the blessing of work, it's a blessing. And I don't know where we bought into this lie that work was so bad. You know, I look at the older generation. My dad was a worker. My grandfather was a worker. And they enjoyed, not necessarily the work they did, but they enjoyed using their life to put food on the table for their family. My grandmother worked. She enjoyed getting out and meeting people and working and helping the family. Like there was something that work was a blessing. 
But now all of a sudden we think work is a curse and we got people trying to find, I know people that work a lot harder at not working than they do trying to work. I'm like, man, you're, you're pretty smart. If you just got a job, you, you'd probably go straight up the corporate ladder. But you're so busy trying to find ways not to work. And God says it's a blessing. Even in Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. And what I've learned in life, and my dad taught me hard work. My grandfather taught me hard work. Thank God, because if it wasn't for them and I got in the church world and got in the ministry, I'd, I'd be lazy because half the Christians I know are just lazy people. Half the ministers are lazy people. And what I've learned is God's favor many times looks like hard work. Thomas Edison said, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. He also said, it's funny, the harder I work, the luckier I get. God's favor looks a lot like hard work. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalmist connects the favor of God and work together. The favor of God and work. The favor of God and work. The favor of God brings opportunities for work. The favor of God brings rain upon the crops. The favor of God, but you still got to work it. And when you look at the Bible, I, I did a deep study in this, and it's, it's interesting to me that we think the favor of God is just, just supernatural falling down of favor upon somebody, and they just don't do anything the rest of their lives. No, what I've read in the Bible over and over again is that God brings his favor on those he finds working. You don't believe me? Elisha. Elisha is plowing in the field in Israel, which is rocky soil, one of the hardest jobs on planet Earth, hand-plowing rocky soil in the dead of desert heat, plowing and plowing and plowing. And Elijah comes by, and Elijah places the mantle upon Elisha, which represents the favor of God. What's interesting to me is Elijah bypassed the school of the prophets. He bypasses all the prophets of Israel, bypasses them because they're probably not working. They're probably hanging out prophesying to each other. And he finds little old Elisha who's working his rear end off. That's who gets God's favor. David, David's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Samuel's there in the house. He's about to anoint somebody as king. He goes through the brothers who looked apart. They look good. They look, their stature's good. They're tall. They look good looking. They get through all of it. He says, whoa, is there not another one? Yeah, he's, he, we have another one. He's out there working. It's like God said, huh, he's out there working, huh? Go get him. You look at Peter. He walks past the synagogue, walks past the temple. Jesus finds Peter doing what? Working as a fisherman. That's who he chooses and calls to build his church upon. Even tent, the tent maker, Paul, he says, I've worked harder than the rest of them. He was a, a teacher and a preacher, but a tent maker. See, there's something about hard work that attracts God's favor to your life. And I think if you're going to have influence, I want God's favor more than anything else. It takes a little bit of hard work. And what I've learned in ministry is what separates people in ministry is not anointing levels. It's work ethic. I know tons of people are anointed, anointed preachers, anointed leaders, but their work ethic lacketh. And here's what the Bible calls the ministry. It calls it the working of ministry. Ephesians 4.12 calls the work, everybody say work, the work of ministry. 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul calls it the working of miracles, meaning there's something you have to do in order for God to do what God's going to do. 
If I'm going to do, see ministry go forth, I have to do some work so that God can show up. If I'm going to see a miracle, I have to work out some things so the miracle can show up. There's something about the working and the work ethic of Christians that brings the favor of God. So I, I don't get what you're saying. I'm saying this, that God's favor will never exceed your work ethic. God's favor, God's blessings, God, God's anointing will never exceed your work ethic. So if you want to see God's favor increase on your life, you may want to get your hands a little dirty, get your back a little sweaty, and wipe off a little dirt off your brow because God is drawn to work ethic. Because God doesn't bless lazy. And I feel like we're in a culture where there's a whole, whole generation of people they expect God to bless them. They expect God's favor without doing anything God's way. I'm here to tell you, you cannot manipulate God enough to get him to bless you to do things your own way. And I believe one of the things that's going to set apart Christians is a, is a new Puritan movement in some ways. Where when people look at their employees, they want to hire Christians. Because they see a Christian, they see somebody who's going to work hard. They're going to have integrity. They're going to have honesty. They're going to have a prudence about them. They're going to be on time. They're going to do all these things that make them more valuable in the workplace because it's going to shine a light into the darkness. And people are going to start hiring Christians because Christians carry the favor of God upon them. And so just real quick, qualities of godly work ethic. Now, Jesus was a carpenter. He literally worked with his hands. He literally made things. And that word carpenter is not just wood. He did stucco and stone cutting and masonry and all these things. But it sounds like my dad. My dad would pick me up from school with his blue jeans on, his work boots. His shirt was always off. He's musty, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, ball cap on. And we get in the car together. He stank. He was dirty. I feel like many times we polish Jesus up so much that we don't even worship Jesus. That I believe sometimes, yes, that Jesus is sitting on the, white, on, on the throne of God. Yeah, I believe that. But most of the things we see about Jesus, he's working with his hands. He's dirty. He's musty. He's sweaty. He's on the cross. He's beaten. He's bloody. He's messy. That when I think about Jesus, I think of this example that sometimes the work of life is just getting your hands a little bit more dirty. Like Jesus literally could have sat in heaven just and declared things. But he decided to join us in the work of the ministry. And so I believe that we have this great example, this great role model that the New Testament church had of watching Jesus work. So number one would be this, just work hard. Just simply work hard. If you're on the clock, work hard. What would Jesus do if he's on the clock at your job? If Jesus was on the clock at your factory, how would he work? If Jesus worked on your job site, how would he work? If Jesus worked in your hospital, how hard would he work? I promise you. He wouldn't be sitting in the corner taking a nap. I, I was at the barbershop a couple years ago. I was at the barbershop. This guy's complaining about he's getting fired from one of the factories. and He's getting fired. And he's like, man, it's not fair, man. Like, the man's just after me. And I asked him what he did. He says, well, man, like, I was taking a nap. I was like, really? And it kind of funny, he wasn't just taking a nap. He built a whole bed behind some shelving. had some boxes, a pillow, a you know, a, a Smurfs blanket or something. I don't know what he had. But he was sleeping on the job, and he, he thinks he don't deserve to get fired. And then slowly, this other guy sitting there not saying a word, he's going to smirk. He said, I'm about to go apply for your job. <laughs> How would Jesus work 
if he was on your job. Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes one rich. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Proverbs 18, 9. Whoever is slack in work is a brother to him who destroys, meaning whoever is lazy is a friend of the devil. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Work hard. Two, work well. Whatever you do, work as if you're making it, presenting it to Jesus himself. If a man, this is a Dr. King quote, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets as if Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. You should work in such a way people realize you're working for God. Like if Jesus is making you a cabinet, he was a carpenter. If he was making you a cabinet and you went to go pick up your cabinet, what do you think it would look like? I promise you it wouldn't look like how I make it. You know, this size little pastor. I don't know if this is a square or an oval. Like, I don't know if it's really square. The door don't really shut. No, he's not going to throw something together. He's going to make something that displays the glory of God. I promise you it's going to be square. It's going to have attention to detail. It's going to be beautiful. And when you put it in your house, you'll be proud of it. And when you show up work, you can work well enough that you can be proud of your works. It displays the glory of God. Three, work well, but work well with others. Meaning don't be the work snitch. Don't be the work gossip. 1 Timothy 6.12, let all who are under a yoke of bond service or employment regard their masters as worthy of all honor. So the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since they who benefit by their good services are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Meaning, how you are at work is what Paul is saying. How you respect others at work determines how the unbelievers see God. Which is a huge deal. But number four, don't just work hard. Don't just work well. Don't just work well with others, but be on time. Touch your neighbor and say, be on time. Say, Pastor, listen to your own message. Time's up. Be on time. Be on time because it shows that you care about other people. Our kids know, Ariana started her job, her first job last year, and she showed up like right on time. And RJ said, you're going to be in trouble. Don't you know if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late? That is a gorly value that some in the family haven't quite gotten yet. It just shows respect. It shows that I care about this. It shows that I care about you and your time. If I show up late, it means I'm stealing time for you because I need it. Be on time. Do you think Jesus would show up late for a meeting? Do you think Jesus would show up late for work? Do you think Jesus would show up late to clock in? No, Jesus would be on time because he's an on-time God. And last but not least, work hard, work well, Work well with others, be on time, but work hard and rest hard. The cycle of resting. Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. You're called to work hard, but also rest hard. We were created to work, but we were also designed to rest. God gave us bodies that require rest. That's why we have to sleep. 
and our bodies also need Sabbath. He commanded his people to take a day off each week. Resting well shows that we trust God to provide. We don't have to constantly be working and striving to acquire more material goods. What is Sabbath, Pastor? Sabbath is what breaks up your work to remind you that God is your provider, not your work. Sabbath, this is my definition from Mark Buchanan, is ceasing from that which is necessary to embrace that which gives life. So what does that mean? It means you have things you have to do that are necessary. You have meetings, you have bills to pay, you have a job to do. You can, you can always work more. There's always more things to work on. But you stop all those things you have to do to embrace that which brings you life, that connects you back to God. I've preached on this for series and everything else, but just simply, it means you take time to stop work, to focus on God and to enjoy Him in His presence. For me, Friday's my Sabbath. I try to spend time with Toya. I try to go to the tree stand because in the tree stand, there's no phones, there's no work to do. I can just rest in God's presence and pray. Like I enjoy that. This Friday, me and Toya drove to Collinwood, you know, to the big city, the metropolis of Collinwood to get coffee and drove the trace back down to enjoy the changing of the leaves. Like for you, it may be reading a book in the corner, but you need to have something that stops the cycle of work. Because Exodus 32 says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time, you shall take a rest. Mark 2, 27, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. Meaning God made Sabbath for you as a blessing. But in order to get there, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I promise you, we see it throughout scripture. Jesus worked hard, but he also Sabbathed hard. And if we're going to be influencers, your work ethic and your rest, we're going to set you apart from everybody else. Set you apart. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for one quick second. Have our, our prayer team come up. But if you're in this room today, you say, well, you know what? I just, I need to say yes to Jesus. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been working on you. Maybe he's been convicting you of some things. Maybe he's trying to, you're at a season of life, you just need a fresh start, a new beginning. Maybe you need a, a, to say yes to Jesus to forgive you of things you've done and things you walked in. We call that salvation. Salvation is the beginning of a journey with Jesus, not the end. And it starts with you confessing your sin before him, confessing your need for him, repenting from where you've been and turning to him and asking for mercy and forgiveness. And he washes you in his blood and makes you brand new again. Galatians 2.20 says we're to die to ourselves. We're crucified with Christ so we can live with him by faith and grace. So that's me today. I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to start over. I need a fresh start. Not going to have you stand up. Not going to have you come forward. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. That's you. Just slip your hand up real quick. That's me. I need a fresh start. All right, I mean, you can stand up. Real quick before you leave, two quick announcements. One, three announcements. One, our prayer team is down front. If you need prayer for anything, stand up to your feet all over the room. Sorry. If you need prayer for anything, you need prayer in your body, you need prayer for healing, you just need a, to two or three to touch and agree, they're here to pray for you. Two quick announcements. If you're newer here and you want to get connected, me and the staff are going to be in the gather room at the Connect 
uh, time just for a second. Just say hi. I want to get to see your face, get to know your story a little bit, and we can point you in the direction of getting connected here at chapel. Two, ask Jennifer Smith, uh, her and David, some of our lay pastors here. She wrote this book during COVID called Leading with Jesus, Ministry Outside the Walls of a Church in the Marketplace. This book goes perfect with this series we've been in. I strongly encourage you to go buy this book. Their story is incredible just with their business. Uh, David took it over his, his mom and dad and some of the things they've been through with the flood and, and COVID and everything else. Some great leadership principles and influential, influence principles in this book. It's normally $15. There are $10 at the book table out front. And that is all. Father, I bless these your people. I pray as they leave, they leave on mission. They leave on purpose. They leave with your Holy Spirit, carrying them every step of the way. Father, I pray as they leave, they go to the workplaces. Their work ethic demonstrates the glory of God. Their integrity demonstrates the values of God. And their love demonstrates the heart of God in every relationship, every conversation, and everything they do. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.